This is Framed, a podcast where a group of friends get together once a week to talk about movies, what we liked about them, what we didn't like, and how they're made. I'm Elliot. I'm Robert. And I'm Brennan. This week on Framed, we take a look at a classic Coen Brothers film featuring crime, a briefcase full of money, and unexpected violence. Can you guess which Coen Brothers film it is? <laughs> what else is new this week, Elliot? Fargo. <laughs> We're all in person. We're all in We're person all this time. We're all in the same room for the same first, time. I think this is a first for this podcast. I don't think we've yeah. ever done this all in the same room together. So, And what better room to record in than an all-concrete room with glass <laughs> furniture? <laughs> <clears throat> yep, yep. Um, yeah, should be fun. Now we can all kind look, of look, at each, look at each other awkwardly while we record. It should be good. And try not to laugh at each other. But we can also make eye contact so we're not stepping over each other. We're going to like be professional podcasters today. Right, right. Um, yeah, so uh, Fargo is our, is our film of the week. This was my, my pick um, for Coen Brothers Month. Um, you guys just want me to do a quick plot summary, and then we can get into. Well, first of all, actually, who? How many? How many times have you guys seen this movie? Who's this? Anybody's first time or ever? It's my first time. Okay. Okay, Robert. I think I've probably seen this around eight times. I would okay. guess. Okay. I think my, I'm close to that. I think I, I think I've lost count of uh, how many times I've I've seen this film. I, I, it's it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah. So I'll I'll just do a quick plot summary, and then we can jump into it. So. Fargo is a film about a desperate car salesman named Jerry Lundergaard who has several money problems and decides the best way out of his money problems is to hire a couple of criminals to kidnap his wife in order to extort money from her rich father. Um, but things quickly go wrong. Um, the, the criminals are able to kidnap his wife, Jean, but there's, there's an accident that happens on the way to their remote cabin. Um, they're stopped by a state trooper, who they end up killing. There's the scene of the crime is witnessed by a couple of passers-by who also end up killed. Um, and so, at this point in the story, we introduce Marge Gunderson, who is a a uh, police officer who's also pregnant, and she is assigned to the the case of the the three homicides on the side of the road. And over the course of the film, as things continue to escalate, the the two strands get closer and closer together. Um, and yeah, violence ensues. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, maybe just a quick round table of, uh, just initial thoughts about this. What, what did you guys think of Fargo? Brennan? Well, I enjoyed it. It was very pleasing to watch. There's a couple scenes that probably we could have gone without. Hmm. And I'm also, which might, um, get some frown faces at me, but Mike, Mike Buscemi, is that how you say it? No. Steve Buscemi. Steve, Steve. Buscemi. Steve yeah. not Mike. Um, <laughs> I'm actually not a big fan of his. Mm. Um, I think he's a little overrated. Uh, there is a show I'm watching right now called Miracle Workers that I don't mind him in. He does very well in. Um, <laughs> so your example of why you don't like him is a show that you like him in? Well, no. Everything else, I'm not a fan of him. Okay. Not even Monsters, Inc.? That doesn't count, because you can't see him. 
So you'd say he's kind of a funny looking guy. He's a kind of funny. He's looking kind of guy. a funny looking guy. Yeah, just a general sort of way. Just yeah, generally yeah. funny generally. looking. I think he would be fine just as a voice actor. Mm-hmm. It's just <laughs> so you just say how he looks. It's not how he looks. It's his, like his antics. Like he just doesn't <laughs> do any. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. Okay. Know. Okay, I'm Robert. Sure. What did you think of Fargo? <laughs> yeah. Um. Obviously, like, I'm a fan of Fargo. I have mm-hmm. to be a fan of Fargo. Like, it's Coen Brothers, it's Roger Deakins, I'm a film lover, you're not allowed to not love Fargo. Yeah. Uh, you actually have to sign a code, I think. Um, <laughs> so, like, as, as basic as it is, like, mm-hmm. I would easily put this as, if not my favorite Coen Brothers one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's a very, very strong example of creating character mm. around plot and not just following a plot. Definitely, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, for me, I actually didn't like this film the first time I saw it. So, just a little background on my history with watching Coen Brothers films. The Big Lebowski was my first Coen Brothers film, and I, I loved that so much that, like, I sort of just started consuming everything they had made to find like something like the Big Lebowski. So, uh, Steve Buscemi is constantly told to shut the f- up. Yes, and that that's a reference to yes, Fargo. yes, you're right because he talks so much in he this. And Big so Lebowski much. was their next film. Yeah, yep. I, I had heard that. <clears throat> um, yeah, so like I sort of thought that this was going to be more of a straightforward comedy, less less black I guess like I I was kind of off put by just how dark this was and how I saw this when I was 22 or 23 and and like I actually found it really confusing because I didn't know what loan collateral was I was like (laughs) what is the deal with these car like serial numbers and I thought it was a kind of a confusing movie but it's definitely grown on me over the years it's (laughs) not enough bowling I just couldn't I know right it was like yeah just couldn't couldn't follow it yeah um, but no, it's like this is. I think this has grown into being one of my, probably my favorite Coen Brothers film. Like I, this is like definitely comfort food Coens for me now. Um, so yeah, um, any particular scenes you guys want to talk about that jumped out to you? Well, before we jump into scenes, can I ask you a question? Yes. Whose movie do you think Fargo is? As in, like, Joel or Ethan? No, like, whose story? Oh, well, yeah, it's interesting because Marge Gunderson gets introduced very late, which is very unusual. Like, Like act two. Halfway through the film. Right, right. So, and she's one of the most important characters. So, yeah, it's like, you know, you're sort of tempted to say Marge because she's in all the promotional material for this, but she's not in half the film. Yeah. And it's not really, I mean, Jerry kind of takes a back seat after He's the also beginning. really only in half of the <laughs> Right, right. So, and it's like... Really? I feel like it's the bad guys' movie. Steve Buscemi and, Steve and Peter Stormare. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, they definitely, I think, have the most screen time. Um, and I, I do want to get into talking about Jerry at some point, um, because I think it's really interesting that he is such a ineffectual character like anytime he has a confrontation with somebody he just absolutely fails at it and yet he's responsible for putting the entire movie (laughs) in in motion so um 
But yeah, to answer your question, I, I would probably go with Marge, I guess. Just she seems the most protagonisty of the characters. I still think it's I mean both the bad guys I feel like are their the main I mean they push they're the main ones that push the story. They mm-hmm. bring the highs up and the lows down and Marge would be a close second. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, actually, you know, now that I've given it some thought, I think this is actually Mike Yanagita's movie. <laughs> I think this, he's merely the main character in this. Um, yeah, do you guys want to talk about Jerry? Because, I mean, he's a, he's a we absolutely starting can. point. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into that character. Yeah, so we're sort of introduced to him. He's in the first scene. He shows up at this bar in, in Fargo, North Dakota, to, to start up this deal with uh, uh, Carl... Showalter and and um, gosh, what's what's the other guy's name? Gare Greer Greer. Sure. It's one of the other guy, Peter Stormare. Um, and I think it's it's uh, we get a really good sense of his character right off the bat. Is he's just kind of this um, like he seems like he'd be a really nice guy on the surface. Like he seems really mild mannered and polite and and you know non confrontational. But we you know. I kind of think he is a nice guy throughout. Like, mm. he does these terrible things. Like, he's not a good guy, for sure. He's a nice like, guy. He's a nice guy yeah, throughout. Yeah. Even at the very mm. end when he's being arrested, you're like, oh, <laughs> Kind of a big crybaby yeah. <laughs> at the end of the film, yeah. Um, but, I mean, because he, he doesn't really do any of the bad things. Mm-hmm. He just potentially is using his he's like the father-in-law's pa- money yeah but he's people. okay with putting like his wife in right. the hands yeah. of complete strangers exactly. that are known criminals like yeah. he's not a good he's, guy he's not right no, by no means was i saying he's a good guy he just didn't like the kill and the actual like i mean quote unquote bad worse things sure. in, the, in the film right. he's not the instigator of those. yeah yeah yeah, only in the sense that he's like the pebble that starts right. the Started, avalanche. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then he realizes that it all just went to crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's he's called out pretty early on in the film as being a liar by the the um, customers at the at the dealership because he said he wasn't going to put the true code on the car, and then he went ahead and did it, and they call him out for. For being a liar. Well, um, yeah, and then he immediately says, "Well, the dealer does that, right?" So it and wasn't it's like, an option anyway. Which, like, right, right. Which, by the way, that scene where he goes off, to, I'm going to go talk to my boss, and then that, he just goes and kills a few minutes and comes back. That yeah. threw me off. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was comedic, but it completely threw me. Oh, uh, I, I love it because yeah. you know that happens at some dealerships. <laughs> oh, like, I'm sure, right, I'm, I'm sure talk, it does. And then, okay, we, we've done that part of the script about right. to go back in and offer yeah. something else. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, it it tells you the character. Like, yeah, the, it does. Yeah. The Coen brothers are doing a lot of heavy lifting yeah. in this moment because uh-huh. they're like, this is a guy that is going to drop any morals immediately to get as soon as it's convenient right yeah um yeah and uh, would you guys say that his character that he has a character arc throughout the film no and that's why i was asking whose film this is Mm. uh i think the only person is marge yeah marge yeah um 
and her arc is really like a C plot in this whole thing. <laughs> right. But she at least has an arc and does a little bit of change. There's very yeah. little character development in the I, classic sense in this film. I feel like Carl, which is Steve, Steve's our favorite, does have a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I feel like at the beginning, he's... He has his face intact. <laughs> that too. But he's, I mean... Like, whenever the other guy kills the cop, for instance, mm-hmm. he's trying to do things low-key, like... Yeah, absolutely. Through the, most of the beginning of it, he's trying to keep things as low-key as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other guy is just like, I'm going to kill everyone. Right. Regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we see him towards the end. He's killing the father-in-law. He's mm-hmm. killed the... That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. guard, the... Gate teller, teller, whatever yeah, he was. Right. So I feel like I mean it wasn't a good arc, <laughs> but I feel like there was some change to his character. Do you think that was like change to his character or more change to his situation? Because like when he's bribing the cop when they got pulled over, he's like trying to just <laughs> keep things because like obviously killing the cop is going to make this whole job more right. complicated. Right. But right. then like he knows the police are after him. Like mm-hmm. his friend that works at the dealership has come and beat him up, and he knows, like, <laughs> okay, I need to cut and run now. Yeah. And then he's just using violence to get past whatever in his way. Mm-hmm. Because like he I doesn't, do that too. he yeah. doesn't go and kill his partner. He gives him forty grand and says, "Hey, mm-hmm. I got all the money. We're I, done." But, Where if he, yeah, he could have easily killed completely, him. like just. But he also in, hid a good chunk of the money too. Right, which is mm-hmm. the non-violent, like almost cowardly yeah. way out of dealing with it. He could have just dri- he could have not driven back at all. He could have mm-hmm. just yeah. taken off and yeah. run. Right, you know? right. That's a good point. <clears throat> which I want to take a brief side detour to talk about the the briefcase um, that he buries in the snow at the end of the film, which is kind of left as a loose plot thread in this mm-hmm. that we you know just it gets forgotten yep. you know which is um is kind of poetic in a way that, but yeah i think they're trying to yeah. like raise the point of like it was all for money and, and it ended up money. it's like a treasure of the sierra madre thing where all of this stuff that happened would ended up being for nothing, for nothing. Yeah. yeah but a couple of people have had some fun with that loose plot thread in in other projects so the fargo tv show actually picks that up and tells you what happened to the briefcase that somebody finds the the uh, ice scraper sticking out of the snow. <laughs> and then there's another film, um, I think it's called Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. Um, yeah. You've heard of this? Yeah. yeah. It's a 2014 biopic about, an ur- I think it's an urban legend. I don't- biopic. Biopic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, about this woman who watched Fargo in like the late 90s, early 2000s and thought that it was a documentary and decided she was gonna go try to find the, the briefcase and supposedly froze to death. Yeah, so that's based on a real woman. Right, but they uh, don't know if she if that was the, her reason. They do know her reason. Her reason was to come to the hometown of her boyfriend and commit suicide. Ah, uh, okay, so, so it has nothing to do with Fargo. It's, it's a little darker. But... Right, right, okay. I haven't seen that other film, so I don't, I don't know anything about it. I just, I just saw it earlier on Wikipedia. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> <clears throat> um, anyway, so yeah, do you guys want to talk about Marge now? So I have some thoughts on, on Marge. Please share them. So I, I agree with you that she's probably one of the only characters that in this that has a character arc, and it's kind of like this loss of innocence in a way. She's very chipper and happy-go-lucky, 
at the beginning of the film, even though she's you know a police officer and obviously has lots of experience. Isn't and, she the chief? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's yeah. chief chief of police. Yeah, so she's seen stuff, and you know the the triple homicide thing doesn't really phase her. So she's you know not naive. Yeah, and you know she's good at her job, but it's like by the end of the film, she just has this really world weary look on her face. Like, okay, I've seen it all now. Like this this mm-hmm. is too much. Um, yeah, what, what what did you guys think? Now talking about her, that's one of my issues. Not her character, but when I was talking about scenes that I feel like could have been cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two scenes, the phone call where she talks to uh, the, the school friend, school friend or whatever, yeah. mm-hmm. and that dinner with Mike. With Mike, yeah. I feel like those could have been cut. What are y'all's opinions? I just feel like there wasn't any. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's. I I kind of had the same reaction as you the first couple times I I saw this film, and I, I've it's kind of grown on me in a really weird way because yeah on the surface all of that is like completely disconnected from everything else going on but it's almost like the encounter with Mike is you know again talking about like a pebble that starts an avalanche it's like it's this thing that happens to her where she sort of assumes the best in people and then she's taken off guard and it kind of they have that montage immediately afterwards like the the wheels in her head are kind of turning um you know just kind of reflecting on the dinner with Mike and, and the case she's working on and it it's implied that it that that's what ultimately motivated her to go back to the dealership and re-interview Jerry. So I think it's even implied that like getting to see Mike is one of the main reasons she decides to drive into the main mm. town to look into things. So. Yeah, that's true too. Like so she wouldn't have even gone to see Jerry in the first place if if Mike hadn't called her and invited her to come to Minneapolis. So that's that's a good point too. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I see what you're saying. Like it, yes, it's disconnected, but also, it's it's kind of not also. So I, I don't know. I I think it's fine. I I probably wouldn't have. I think you would have lost something if you had cut that out. And what what do you think? I think it is a a C plot. Yeah. But I think it it tells us things and it motivates us, uh, motivates the characters, and it also. Yeah gives her the opportunity to like evaluate her situation you know and it gives mm-hmm. us a little bit of of a character moment within this farce which is what fargo is you know it's larger than yeah. life it's yeah. yeah you know a mistake after a mistake after a mistake yeah. leads right. us to this um it gives us this lovely little bit of you know character moment of like oh here's this guy and I feel bad for him. And then on top of that, I'm going to find out that he's a liar as well. Mm, right. It, it, I don't Piles think it's up a, on her. Yeah. I don't think it's a wasted moment because it does what all good moments in film do, which is point back to the thesis of the film. You know, mm-hmm. it has the themes of the, yeah, I the, the whole film, which is like, right. are you going to, drop your morals to get whatever you want. And here's mm-hmm. another character counterpointing Marge, right? right here's yeah. another character who's dropping their morals to get what you want. Whereas Marge is a woman two months away from giving birth to her first child mm-hmm. and still, still doing, doing her job, her. putting herself in yeah. danger. Right, and doing kick butt out. police work. Right. Yeah. So, uh, which you're talking about the Coen brothers doing like heavy lifting in scenes. One, one scene in particular that always kind of, kind, kind of astounds me, 
is where Marge arrives at the scene of the crime and just kind of takes a look at everything and immediately, like, almost in a Sherlockian way, is like, okay, so what we got here, and it figures it out just by looking at it. It's, it's like, yeah. okay, that tells you everything you need to know. It's like, she's this nice lady who's also good at her, good job. At her job. Yeah. 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 So. No, which, that kind of, there's another question I have for you. Okay. Um, when she pulls up to the house. Yeah. Would cops? I mean, I know that there's a bunch of feet print out, and there pro- mm-hmm. there probably was some blood, but I was surprised that she they didn't have her go check the house first. You're talking about at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think the idea is that, that she, she just, hears the wood chipper going, uh, so I she goes there. Yeah, but that that checks out. Yeah, I don't I don't know if in real life if she would have waited for backup or if she would have gone in by herself. Well, I think the idea is, you know, devil may care. I don't wait for backup. <laughs> right, yeah. um, right, right. It's yeah. also implied though that there's like three cops in this area. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um Yeah, let's let's talk about the um the film itself, like the cinematography. Like mm-hmm. I think this is just a beautiful no, film, yeah. really well shot. I mean, Roger Deakins doing, you know, top shelf work. Doing Roger Deakin things. Yeah, there's there's so much of this where scenes are done in one shot, and it's like that's all you need. You, you don't need a lot of complicated cross cutting and jumping back and forth. Like they just like Marge leaving for the the, the yeah in the morning when they yeah. be leaving the house. Yeah, that's another favorite of mine because it's it shows her having having breakfast with Norm, and then she goes and gets in the car and comes back and says, car needs a jump. It's all done in one shot, and it's it's all just the framing and placement of everything is just perfect. What I love about, because, like, Roger Deakins is no slouch. Um, we've already had multiple Roger Deakin films yeah. on this podcast because, like, <clears throat> Roger Deakins does good work. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, what I love about Fargo is, and I think Roger Deakins would also say that this is like a very positive thing about it. Mm-hmm. It's not flashy. No, like, it's very no, minimal. It's not, there yeah. are beautiful shots in it, but it's not like we're going to have 50 different lights with yeah. all different colors on yeah. it, and the camera's going to be spinning around the actors. Right, like, and it's almost like a course correction for the Coen brothers, because their previous film, The Hudsucker Proxy, is very much like that. It's very like overproduced and flashy. So they, they did tell Roger that like we want to do this proscenium. Because we want it to feel like a like a true crime reenactment almost, so they wanted well, it. Well, it is a true story. It's, it's, it's a, a true. We'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, but so they told him like we're not gonna move the camera. We're mm-hmm. just gonna leave it on sticks. Yep. And for the most part, that's true. As you watch this, you'll see a lot of There's only out. a couple handheld shots in this, yeah. But there are a handful of dolly shots as well, which like to you or me who's just watching the film like okay they changed their mind but you gotta remember you're up in the middle of nowhere filming mm-hmm. you need to bring whatever you need <laughs> that's true yeah. so they promised him they were like no dolly and then the first day they were getting shots of the car driving on the road and they were mm-hmm. like let's just do like a really long dolly that we could <laughs> do like credits with along so he's got a find, which you can use like electric conduit as dolly track, but like mm-hmm. he's got to find, I forget how long, but it was like a hundred yards or something of track, <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> um, but no, like from a cinematography standpoint, like the 
use of snow, yeah, I yeah. think, is so like strong in this. Like, there's the the one shot that always comes to mind is the like crane high angle of the parking lot. Oh yeah, that I love that scene. Like yeah. driving yeah. through. Which that um, must have been a nightmare to shoot because I, I notice every time I watch it that there's like no other footprints in the yep. parking lot, like no nothing mm-hmm. from the crew. Yep. Or you gotta nothing. just you gotta just <laughs> set up and you get you get one. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, I don't know if you saw this when you were looking up about the uh, film, but like this was one of the warmest yeah. summer uh, winters, so like finding snow was hard. Was hard. Yeah, and like that's just. So indie filmmaking of like you have got this great script set in desolate snow. We're gonna go and film in the middle of winter and no snow. No snow, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I mean, and it's like you'd never guess that they had any production problems like that. Like it's it's completely, you just totally buy it. Like I don't know if they used fake snow or, or if I they just went further so. north. To I think they just film. waited for and they like shot interiors when they didn't have snow yeah. and then they waited for snow to come. Yeah, no, it was very expertly handled. You'd never guess that that was a, a problem for them. Um, I also I also really enjoyed so the gory parts, mm. which I mean, yes, I like gore. That's interesting to me. But aside from that, they didn't just wrap. A lot of films will rather go like every time there's a time that they can put something in put something gory in right they put it every time or not at all Mm -hmm. but with this not everything was completely gory like um steve buscemi's character when he got shot in the face that was but then (laughs) was yes (laughs) granted he the father-in-law had a big coat on and stuff and you probably would see sure. it but there wasn't much blood at all for that yeah um, you can take you had the little like the, red fountain coming out of the police officer's head in, in the yeah <laughs> um, and you had the, a lot of the blood and stuff for the wood chipper but then like the axe to the face mm-hmm. yeah just cut they, on the axe just cut it yeah and I right. thought they did very well with that they didn't yeah. go over the top gory but they had some gore in it Right, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed that. I think it's a testament to that they're at, by this point they're they're sort of master filmmakers that know what they're doing. They know when to use gore and when not to use it. Yeah. When you know whatever's in service of the story. Well, but you got to also remember, like this, they had three box office flops before this. They were working on post while they were also shooting. Um, the Big Lebowski on this, so like they could have come out in any order. This came out first mm-hmm. and was successful. I think it had like a budget of mm. seven million and it made like sixty domestic. So that's yeah, that's great. <clears throat> but then Big Lebowski was not a commercial success. No, that was more of a cult film. Yeah, that it got has since later. become yeah. a, a very successful film yeah, right, at the time. Right. And you gotta wonder if that had been flipped. Mm. You if, know, if they like, wouldn't have. That would have taken some of the steam out of... Well, if if they would have been able to get funding for their projects. Like, mm-hmm. if it would have, like, cut their feet. And, I mean, like, this is very champagne problems because, like, there are plenty of directors that don't get to have four unsuccessful films and still get to make films. Yeah. Right. But, like, it is, it is very yeah. timely that they got to do Fargo here where they really showed, like, hey, this is what I can do. And a lot of people would say, even those 
commercially unsuccessful films are still very good. Yeah. Oh yeah, like I think the Hudsucker Proxy is the only one that sticks out to me as like, eh, this is not their best work. But like Barton Fink is a is a fantastic film, and like I think it was like critically well well received, even if it didn't do commercially well. So I think they had a lot of like clout as like good directors, creative, creative directors. directors. Yeah, yeah, they might not be like box office hits. <clears throat> um, but yeah, like yeah, just kind of comparing it to Hudsucker Proxy, it's like this this Fargo feels like much bigger and grandiose, whereas Hudsucker Proxy now feels kind of dated and small. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of sets and a lot of right. special effects that haven't aged very well. But this this feels a lot more like sort of a um, timeless kind of piece of film. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Ever, but it might have been the other guy whose name always escapes Siskel? me. Siskel? Yeah, Siskel. Um, one of them said that Fargo might be the greatest film ever made. Mm. Uh, and both of them... <laughs> I know Ebert was very... Both of them were it, yeah. very positive yeah. for it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, One of the things that, that strikes me about Fargo every time I see it is how messy it seems, but it's like a controlled mess. Absolutely. Like, Especially in the dialogue. Yes, yeah. The dialogue is yes. very sloppy. Like, But I mean, those are kind of have negative connotations, but it's like, it feels like natural. Yeah. Dialogue. Like all the repetition, like people repeating themselves and but, just talking over each other. Yeah. If you or I wrote that, it would not work. Right. Like, just, yeah. the, the biggest issue I had with talking about dialogue was that very first scene mm-hmm. where oh, they're talking. In Fargo? Yeah, they're just the dialogue, like how they were talking and just kind of repeating themselves. Yeah. I felt like it was the weakest at that point. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Interesting. Strong disagree. <laughs> I love that opening. I yeah, I do too. The, it's almost I mean, like the first scene of a play. Like, almost. I mean, 7 7 Oh, 8.30? It tells you everything that's going to happen. I mean, there's some good points in it. I mean, overall. That opening thing, I really do like. Mm-hmm. It's just some of the dialogue I don't as much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just not and not like them repeating the seven thirty, eight thirty, right? That, but like in one line, there was one in specific that um, Jerry said. I don't remember the, what the line was. I w- wish I would have written this down, but how he kind of. I mean, it kind of seemed like he was stuttering, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I just didn't like how it. Just he's kind of inarticulate. Yeah. Um, I love that first scene simply because of the seven thirty eight thirty thing. Like yeah. it tells you exactly yeah, yeah. what the movie is going to be about with that one exchange. Yeah. Like it's all going to be misunderstandings from yeah. here on out. But yeah, no, I, I could see that that the dialogue could be. It introduces pretty... you to three of the main characters and. It introduces you to them. You understand yeah, no, yeah. these right. men right. immediately. Right. Like I said, like other than that minor thing, I love the I love mm-hmm. that opening mm-hmm. scene. It was great. It was just it was just like one or two lines that kind of bugged me. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's another subplot in this that I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about. And it's not even really a subplot, I guess, but just more of a, like a subtextual theme that it's definitely there, but I'm, I have trouble connecting it to the rest of the story, and that's how television is used in this. So we're shown uh, characters watching TV a lot in this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, you know, I think the most stark example is Jean watching TV, and she's so, like, I don't know, dulled by it that she doesn't even, like, respond to the guy walking up to her window and, and smashing it. 
Um, right. But it's like there's there's lots of instances like that where you know, Gares is just like staring at the TV mindlessly when the, when they're in the cabin. You know, the, after they have sex with the prostitutes, then they're just it's like watching, watching the Tonight TV. Show. Yeah. yeah. So it's like I think it's I think I feel like they're they're it's they put that in there on purpose. But I'd be curious to hear if you guys had any thoughts on that. No, you saying this, that was the other, there was one other scene that I thought could have been cut, but the more we talk about this, <laughs> the more I think I've changed my mind, and that was when the TV wasn't working at mm -hmm. the, that one house where he's yeah. just hitting on it and trying to get it to work, and then it's just nothing, like it just, well, it really, but first of all, even if that scene does nothing else, it gives us one of the best cuts in <laughs> it does. cinema it does. history. It does, it does. <laughs> Um, but as far as, like, the use of TV, I think, like, the obvious interpretation is, like, d TV is ruining cinema and ruining <laughs> lives, yeah. like, movies are good, TV is TV bad. TV bad, yeah. Which was, like, definitely the, like, intellectual, oh, yeah. like, stance to Certainly have. Certainly pre-peak TV. Yeah. Yeah. Until, yeah. like, pretty recently with mm -hmm. probably Lost. I think Lost was probably the beginning of... Which... Well, I mean, I think it started with Twin Peaks, but it didn't really get rolling as, I like, mean, a prestige There format. were amazing... The Sopranos, Twin Peaks... Like, X-Files. There, yeah. there were great... I'm not knocking on any of those, but I yeah. think society started, like, taking TV seriously with loss. Yeah. Right. And I think more so than anything else because of the budget of the pilot. Like, right. They'd never seen say, anything like it. Would right. you say more so than, I mean, even if, the, I think about this time, soap operas were really big. Yeah. Which that's what, yeah, Gear is watching in the, in the right. cabin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that was kind of the common perception. It, it was the boob tube. It was you right, know, lesser yeah. entertainment. And yeah, like I could see that that was, you know, maybe just the Coen brothers getting a dig in at, at TV. And going back to the scene with, with Gene. The, they're not all, and going, adding, because it's kind of me changing my mind, <laughs> and adding all of this, the fact that the TV wasn't working, mm -hmm. TVs are not always reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The yeah, piece. Forever, <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, it also adds. I mean, it kind of built up um, Steve Buscemi's character. Like his, he gets to curse a lot, and that's <laughs> he does. But it just adds up. Like that's kind of when his anger starts building up a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like, is at that point. It's and almost he just kind of goes off the rails after that. It's almost like the Coen Brothers take on like a Looney Tunes format, where you have like a character who is trying over and over. To do to accomplish a task, and then it's just like increasingly more and more violent things happen to them. Like yeah. you kind of yeah. like um, like I don't know if you guys saw Mouse Hunt. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of yes. like that yeah. where it's like these guys are just trying to kill a mouse, and each time it gets more ridiculous, yep. and right. more damage done to them. Fun, um, completely irrelevant to filmmaking story about that. Mm. Uh, my parents hated that film. <laughs> they didn't want us watching it. Okay, uh, they were just very anti it. And then, when I was probably mm, 12 years old, uh, right around Christmas time, we had a mouse in the house. Okay. And my parents' response was to let us kids get our pellet guns <laughs> and lay down in the living room. <laughs> what the heck? Just like waiting for the mouse Why? to pop out. <laughs> uh, oh, which God. I think yep. just. Yep. 
like the encapsulates yep. my childhood like, <laughs> yes. right there yep. <laughs> yeah yeah that that movie freaked me out as a kid like i I understood enough as a seven-year-old to know that these guys would be dead several times over, and it would be gruesome. Right, and that that bothered me. But anyway, back to Fargo. Um, <laughs> Tune in next week for Mouse Hunt. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what category we would invent to reverse engineer putting Mouse Hunt on the on the movies podcast. With Nathan Lace, Nathan Lace. Yeah, I want to be a producer. <laughs> anyway, um, Fargo. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make one more comment on the TV thing. I can't take credit for this analysis, but I thought it was really cool that like the scene with Gene and um, the, the I don't know if it's uh, Carl or, or Garrett coming up to the window. I forget. I think it's Carl. Um, that the window kind of acts like a TV screen. And um, she is responding to the people on the TV as though they're real people in the room with her. Like she's smiling mm. and laughing at all their jokes, but then she's unable to respond to the real TV screen oh. that the guy then shatters and, and comes into her, her world. So I, Interesting. Yeah. That's so, kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I always think about that when I see that scene. <laughs> um, any other scenes jump out to you guys? Um, yeah. So the, the actual exchange of money, yeah. it's implied that Jerry picks up his father-in-law's dead body and puts it in the trunk of his car. Yeah, that's such a dark scene, but yes. that it. But for why? I guess he felt responsible and didn't want to just leave him in the parking lot, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, like, Jerry's a and, weird... And then they don't really... This is another one of those, like unanswered things maybe he also had a wood chipper <laughs> i mean that's what like, happened to the body like he, yeah I mean, they never find he, him i know he goes off and they found jerry at the hotel right arrest him <laughs> but we don't know where the money went presumably in the trunk like, that's right. like what what's the motivation like as know, far as God i'm knows. concerned because like, he didn't touch it he, he you you've just gotten away with murder at this point because like okay the the one person that would like point to the police and say no this happened and you exactly. should have is now ruined. is mm. is dead and you're clearly not to blame like back it up get yeah. out of there <laughs> that's like, a good point well, yeah i mean like he's the one who i mean he told he was he told him not to go, that Jerry mm -hmm. needed to be the one to go. And, and he like, forced himself, like, he's yeah. like, no, I'm going. So it's his own, it was his own fault and, for getting shot, and, pulling a gun out on him and everything. Uh, yeah, Jerry could have got away scot-free. Uh, Dad's business partner uh, knows that this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, like, why, why... I just that's the only like logical inconsistency like, in yeah, this thing. Because Jerry me. really right. could have gotten away with everything yeah right in reality and everything would have been pinned on G G greer yeah and, and carl yeah well and carl I, I mean, died so it wouldn't even mm -hmm. i think it doesn't that scene doesn't bother me specifically because we've sort of established that jerry is he doesn't have like a clear plan in mind right. that he's just kind of fumbling his way through it like i think a good example of this is the the first B plot that crops up towards the beginning of the film where he's trying to push through this this land deal because I guess he just has this on the back burner and thinks, well, maybe I can pay off my debts this way. 
<clears throat> and then that kind of blows up in his face when when Wade is like, oh, we'll, we'll give you a finder's fee for this. And he doesn't get any of the money he thought he was going to. And it's like he's simultaneously trying to call off the deal with Carl and, and Gear. And, and, and then it's like, well, now he's not going to get any of the money. He just handed over this plot of land. And so it's right. like he doesn't really like how he doesn't like move in a straight line. And I completely agree with that. And I'm not looking for logical moves from every character. Mm hmm. I'm looking for logical consistency in there. So, like, if a cop is asking you if a car's been stolen, like, logically, you should not run out to your vehicle and run away if you're guilty. Like, that's obvious. Like, you're you're in danger right now, but yeah. you're not in trouble. You run, you're in, in trouble. trouble. Right. But logically, I understand the motivation mm -hmm. of... Oh no, they're onto me. I'm just gonna run. Right, and he just kind of crumbles immediately in I, that scene. Yeah, like, right, it, you'd think, but, okay, well, if he runs in all the other spots, but this time he doesn't. He, he doesn't run. He gets yeah, out and takes picks a body. up a body, incriminating himself, <laughs> and throws right. it in. His like, body. I guess maybe he's thinking he's gonna get rid of it, or but like, but it's, what, like, like it's not his responsibility. The whole rest right. of the time, he's running from it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. He's I mean, not it, being proactive. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't bother me. I, it's <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, what else? Another. Th so I have a question because I don't know if it just fell off my radar or did did they kill his wife? Yes. Okay. Like I kind of because I saw it kind of the blood behind her, and, mm -hmm. but they, it didn't yeah. wasn't really it, apparent either way. Yeah. It's kind of. I mean, when you hear, you're sort of. Not sure until Marge says it in the next scene that that was Mrs. Uh, Gunderson on the on the on floor. The floor. On the or floor, sorry, Mrs. Uh, Lindegard on the floor. But it just says she's on the floor. That doesn't like. Well, I don't I think she would have left her on the floor if she was alive. <laughs> but then there's the like the ambulance were coming. That ambulance that came because the it. the bad guy is shot in the leg. Oh, I mean, okay, I guess that <laughs> couldn't check out. But yeah, um, I don't know about you guys. The Jean is like. I, I she's sort of one of the only characters like apart from Marge and, and the police I guess like of the of the people in the Jerry circle of mm -hmm. characters she's the only one who didn't do anything wrong and I like my stomach just turns for her absolutely. every time I watch this absolutely it's like it's a great I don't know the name of the actress but it's a great performance you really feel for her is like this person who's just mixed up in this and didn't do anything to deserve it mm -hmm. I really enjoyed her tied up with a thing over her head, trying to get away from it. I'm like, where is it going to go? You can't even see where you're going. Right. You're in the I really thought the they were going to have her run into a tree. Like, <laughs> that was one of, I don't know, I love that split <clears throat> second of that scene. It was mm -hmm. just, it was funny. Yeah, I mean, as, as dark as this movie is, there are a lot of really funny moments in, yeah. in this like that. Um, and a lot of the dialogue, there's, there's like a lot of really great dry humor like when when Carl's talking to the escort and like you find this line of work interesting. <laughs> <laughs> or like the 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 uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson gag where you know they're having sex and then it just hard cuts to them just watching, watching TV. Watching yeah. TV. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else? I think we kind of covered most of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Well, I mean, oh, what, I think, what did you think of the? Uh, son's character going to McDonald's. <laughs> um, not drinking milkshakes, I can tell you that much. Was that a needed character? 
I, I think so because you had the scene with um, Jerry talking to him and, and kind of just saying like you know we're not going to go to the police and just proceeding to like freak him out even more basically like it, it kind of illuminates just how far Jerry is willing to go that he's willing to lie to his own son there are probably other ways you could have done that like I don't think you need that character mm -hmm. but it it makes it I mean, sadder. It, yeah, it's a lot more because that yeah. he's yeah, that he's it's willing. a family. It's a family man, and he's ruining his family yeah. basically. Which that was yeah. kind of my. I feel like there was a good in between. Like he yeah. didn't drive the movie anything other than just get that little bit. Of what scene. did you think of the wonderful B C D E plot <laughs> of the uh, of the stamp? The Mallard oh. <laughs> stamp competition. Like, I, I love how Norm and Marge are just presented as this happy couple with no, like, marital problems. I think that's, like, a a trope a lot in, in film in general, where you introduce a married couple, they gotta have something, some well, problem. I mean, she goes and meets up with Mike, don't you think yeah. that? Well, yeah, I mean, but it, they never, Norm, there's no scene where Norm, like, confronts her over it or that they have, like, a falling out over the, are you having an affair with me or something? Right, <clears throat> but, like, there is that, like, choice that even, even when Mike makes his intentions clear, mm -hmm. she doesn't shut it down. She just says, go and, go and sit over there. Like, Yeah, you can tell how uncomfortable she is from that moment on. Yeah. Like, she's just like, I, I gotta Part get of, out of this as soon as... There was a bunch of... Like, parts of me that really felt like she didn't actually know him, though, at the same time. Mm -hmm. The way her antics were like, do I really know this guy? Right, is this, right. Do I really... Went to school like, with... Do I actually... Is it just a false memory that, like, he's mm -hmm. put in my head? Mm -hmm. Like, I was really getting the vibes of... She doesn't really remember him. Remember him, but yeah. she's just kind of going with, going with, it. with yeah. it. That's interesting. I never thought about it. I, I just always assumed that she, you know, remembered him, but was kind of un, unexpecting or not not expecting him to crop up again. It was kind of a, a shock to her. Yeah, but, but why, why does she go and drive, you know, two hours or whatever to mm -hmm. meet him, if not to see? Even if to not act on it, but just to like see, is there something there? Yeah, is there another that's, option? Yeah. That's a good point. I never, never really considered that. Yeah, because you, you earlier you were talking about like that. That's kind of her. She kind of they're kind of like equal priority for her for going to Minneapolis is to go, you know, investigate Shep Proudfoot, but also to go go visit Mike. Because it kind of because it kind of seemed like she was getting kind of bored with her husband because he's just mm -hmm. this kind of boring guy just right yeah doing anything. And yeah then she's this big action-packed mm -hmm. chief so, of police character yeah i mean now that you're bringing all this up but yeah you're kind of shifting my when view i said it. at the beginning that she was the only one with a character arc even mm -hmm. though it was a c plot this was what i was referring to mm. that she has to decide like what does she want and who does she want to be in mm -hmm. this and that's why you know she has and then she, that ending yeah, scene where she of snuggles up to her right, so she decides to support yeah. Norm, yeah, with yeah. the weird stamp thing, <laughs> the three cents. Lots of people use the three cent stamp, yeah, when the price goes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that I, I like that interpretation. I never really, I just sort of viewed it more straightforward, I guess, and didn't really look into that. But yeah, no, I, I could see that. So cool. 
Um, okay, well, do you, do we want to wrap this up with scores? Let's do it. All right. Brennan? I'm going to go first. Yeah. Um, I would, I'm trying to think, kind of based on off some of the other ones we watched, which I know we keep going back and forth on <laughs> doing that or not, but... I started uh, a spreadsheet. I don't know if you guys saw that. With, I did. Yeah. I haven't filled it out yet, but all of our previous scores, so we can kind of judge a little easier. I kind of, I kind of think I would, I would give this in probably eight, eight mm. and a half. It's definitely, I enjoyed it more than Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I did not like Raising Arizona. I sure. just enjoyed Fargo more. Sure. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, and the few things that I had, issues I had with it, the more we kind of discussed stuff, I was like, oh, I kind of, I feel like if I were to watch it another couple times, because you guys have both seen it way more than I have, this yeah. is my first watching of it, so yeah, there's a lot to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was great. I still say the same thing about that dialogue at the beginning. But mm-hmm. that's not, sure. That's no, fair. I mean, I think it was pretty, pretty solid though. Desert Bob, Island. Yeah, I think I could take this on a desert island. It's got. I mean, it's got a little bit of gore to it. If you, it's got if a you miss the of, snow, you know, while you're on your desert <laughs> yeah. island, it's got a little bit of thriller to it. It's got some comedy to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got, it's got a good <clears throat> combination of a few different things. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a well balanced film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Elliot, what about you? Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sort of in that zone where I was with, at the end of searching, where I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of aspects of this that I didn't like, that that I would nitpick and say, well, this this they should have done this differently. But this is one of those movies I'm I'm just like, eh, I would I don't think I would change anything. I think they, you know, pretty much nailed what they they wanted to do with this. So I'm probably gonna give this another ten out of ten. Ooh, <laughs> ten out of ten. It's okay. like I if I if somebody came up to me and was like. Hey, I want to get into Coen Brothers movies. Where should I start? I'd say Fargo. I'd say start with this one. Oh, like, I had to start with Raising Arizona. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That wasn't technically my first Coen Brothers film. Yeah. But you also have been on this planet for a long time. If you're just now <laughs> watching Coen Brothers, that's not on us. <laughs> like, The Big Lebowski would maybe be my alternate start here. But that is, it kind of, de- I mean, it, if you're into stoner comedies, I think this is more, has a wider I think, appeal. I, I think, think Big Lebowski was my first Coen Brothers yeah. to watch. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna go ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. And yeah, I would I would take this on a desert island. So now I'm kind of perplexed because I like being Mister Positive and just loving <laughs> the film. And there's I, I I took the ceiling. You from took you. the ceiling, but because you also normally will go the opposite of that and go negative, and I did that. Yeah. So I was gonna give this a nine. Hmm. Um, because I think it's just a classic. It's yeah. so well done. It totally deserves a nine. <clears throat> but like, is it a is it a ten out of ten? Like a ten out of ten to me is a movie that just feels like coming home. Like mm. you put that in and <laughs> like it's what's great about cinema. Yeah. That's how I feel in the opening scene with the, the music swelling and you see the car coming over the horizon. I get that feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, Fargo, prob- like the other, the other thing that I look at is like, is this a successful film? Is this the film they wanted to make? It mm-hmm. is. And it is, it is. <laughs> it is the film. So call it peer pressure. <laughs> call 
Call it what you want. I think I'll give it a 10 out of 10 as well. Uh, Desert Island for me, I don't know. I just do not enjoy like innocent bystanders movies and like mm. it's so tough for me his wife in yeah this, like it's it's kind of stomach churning yeah i do not enjoy that aspect of this film at all so this is not a film i can watch back to back to back like yeah. i can always come back to fargo yeah but i it's not something i could have on repeat i don't think so i don't think it's going to the desert island for me. yeah that's fair which do you have a coen brothers that would be your Desert. I mean, we may be jumping ahead to one of the other ones we're talking about. But. Um. Well, I, it, it's not in this week. I really like Old Country. Mm, that's a that's a really good one. Um, Arguably, has even more innocent bystanders. It, right. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's any Coen Brothers that I could really watch just mm. on repeat. Um, that might be the Big Lebowski. For me, I, either Fargo or Big Lebowski, I'd be happy with either of those two. Sure. I'd say, so far, out of the ones I've watched, there's from I mean, maybe reason there is. I've only at this point, I've only I'm out at number four on Coen Brothers films. Mm. Um, the other one being Oh Brother Where Art Thou, mm. and that one right now is one of my favorites. Oh, interesting. I didn't like Oh Brother Where Art There that much. Oh, really? Yeah, so maybe we should put that on for a future episode. Mm. Yeah. I think okay. we have a Going Brothers 2. We should do round two. I mean, we could. I, I'd be happy to talk about yeah. more Coen Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, me too. I'm, as this goes I, on... Especially if we can have a debate over Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think it's a I, solid I, film. Like, yeah. it's, I, it's, it's probably their most, like... Uh, stylistic, stylistic, yeah. other sure. than yeah. maybe Buster Scrubs, but mm. we'll get there. So, yeah, that's that's. Um, I've heard really good things about that one and Inside Moon Davis. I've heard mm. really good things about those. So those yeah. ones might change my mind on mm-hmm. which one is my favorite, depending. Yeah. Find out the next couple weeks. Right. Right. But sure. Well, speaking of Buster Scrubs. Yep. That's that's next week or next time. Next time we time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's that was your pick, right, Brennan? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. I I have not gotten around to seeing this yet, so this will be a, a new Coen Brothers. Yeah, I me. think I'm the only one that has seen it, mm-hmm. so it's going to be fun because it is um, a, a vignette show or an anthology yeah. where there it's a a series of stories. So we'll have a right. lot of different things to kind of unpack and mm, yeah, yeah. In so, fact, we should just do six short podcast episodes. There we go for your commute. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for potting with me in, in person, person, IRL. Wow. Yeah. Thank, thanks for listening. It was not as stressful as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I no, thought it was going to be kind of rough, but I think it went pretty smooth. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. It was fun. Uh, if you're still listening at this point, thanks for dealing with the concrete reverb. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, please give us five stars if you enjoyed the concrete reverb. <laughs> and if you hated the concrete reverb, give us four stars. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye.